the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. It's the podcast series where I speak to leading professional investors and we discuss how they approach investments, how do they pick the winners and hopefully avoid the losers and also what they do when they end up with some dogs in their portfolios. And the idea is to find those golden nuggets of wisdom from their perspectives and experiences to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Pietri Redlingeis. He is the founder of Irenia Capital Partners. He is also a trader and he has in the past been involved with day trading, niche asset management and he's also been involved with some hedge funds. Petri is also a regular contributor to various MoneyWeb platforms. Petri, welcome to this podcast and thanks for your time today. Just firstly, what exactly does Herenia Capital Partners do? Uh, well, good afternoon and, and thank you for having me. And I think just to uh, comment on some of the things you said in the intro. Sometimes the losers pick us. <laughs> <laughs> and the best thing you could do at that point is just run for cover and, and cry, I suppose. <laughs> so in any case, to answer your question, yeah. So Arenia does a number of things. We sort of traditionally started out focusing on more of these serious semi-professional to professional traders, where we provide lower cost accounts to more high-frequency traders which is obviously still something that we do. So traders who are doing 10 million rand a month or more in terms of nominal value traded, we have a specific low cost account for those types of traders. Then, you know, as time goes by, expanded our service offering. So we do also have some lower cost regular equity as well as CFD account uh, options for the everyday man on the street, uh, as well as I think probably the most cost effective offshore trading accounts available where, you know, for US trading at about $2 per trading execution, which I think is quite reasonable. We've overlaid that with some of the things, as you mentioned uh, in the intro. My background is in more active uh, trading, being in uh, professional trading environments. So what we've done is we've created a sort of a client community where we use you know, online tools available to us where we've created a community where we can do daily meetings with our clients. And we've created a space for them to be able to share information, research, and knowledge, lessons, educational resources, and a very vibrant and active community of clients where, you know, trading can be a bit of a lonely game. So having a number of people around you, you know, you might not be able to go into a physical trading room somewhere, but being able to do that in an online environment is what we find has been working very well for our clients. So you offer a platform and an environment where people can go and trade and it's especially focused at day traders. Well, not necessarily just day traders. We do have some swing traders as well. To be very honest, I think the minority of our clients are very active day traders. What we try to do is have a bit of a consultative process with the client to find out what type of trading is best suited for them. The reality is everybody wants to be a day trader, but not everybody should be a day trader. What is a swing trader? So that's when you're trading something like a CFD or a derivative of sorts, and your time frame for trading is sort of anything between one week and three months. So I might be buying some Tungela today with the idea of selling them when they reach a target, maybe 5 or 10% higher, and that can take two or three weeks to get there. So that's, I suppose, the more traditional CFD trader that's out there in the market using any type of retail platform. And then we do also do some asset management for longer-term investors. We have uh, an offshore uh, portfolio that we run for clients, like a model portfolio, as well as a local portfolio that clients can invest in. 
Let's talk about you. Where did your investment journey start? Sure. Many, many moons ago, I worked for a construction company and got fired <laughs> because, I don't know, I wasn't very good at, at building houses, I suppose. <laughs> and a friend of mine had suggested that I look at this Forex stuff where, you know, pips are dollars, dollars are pips. I don't know. Check out these platforms. How old were you then? I had zero idea. I was about 22, I would think, maybe 21 around there. So, yeah, and then I kind of just thought, wow, this is like, this is what I want to do, right? And then from that point forward, I might have been a bit younger. I think I was around 20, to be honest. Because from that point forward, I then sort of started making every decision that you make in life either gets you closer to or further away from your goal, right? So I took that mindset of, you know, my goal is to be a stockbroker. So how can I get myself closer to that? And I just started going to things. Back then, they still did JSE Week. So I'd go to JSE Week and I spoke to everyone. and you know, some people, credit to him, Carlo, I think he regularly wins the IntelliDex uh, Relationship Manager of the Year Award. He invited me there. He was still at Tebex Futures or Tebex Securities and on the Futures Desk, or Tebe, I think it was. And uh, he invited me to come spend the day at the Futures Desk with him. And I put my best suit on and I went there and I was like, my mind was blown, but this is like real life, you know? And uh, yeah, from that point forward, I just thought, well, what do I need to get there? I need to do RPEs. Okay, cool. Then I, you know, took a job at a bank because it was the first financial services provider that I could work at. And I studied part-time as well as I did some RPEs. And then after a few years at the bank, they wouldn't take me in securities. So I took a job at uh, one of these education providers, you know, selling trading courses. And I learned that, you know, those courses aren't really worth much. But I managed to, to essentially go on all these different courses. And I thought, yes, I know everything there is to know about trading. I'm ready. So I joined a, a day trading firm in, in Johannesburg. And within, I don't think, four months, <laughs> I lost like everything. I had to move into my sister's house, live on a couch, all that kind of stuff. And then I got a job offer in Durban. So I moved down there for about six months. Then I got an offer, an opportunity to join a hedge fund in Cape Town. So I moved to Cape Town. I stayed there for two and a half, almost three years. After that, I came back to Johannesburg. I then ran a trading desk. I was a senior trader at a trading desk in Johannesburg for about three years as well. And after that, I started Arenia. Since having started my own firm, that was now, what, seven years ago about, uh, I did do some consulting for another day trading firm in Cape Town. So I moved back there for a period of three and a half years and kind of, you know, trained a, a bunch of the, uh, you know, the, the role was to recruit uh, and coach and mentor, I guess, youngsters to come in into a, into a professional trading environment. And I took a lot of the lessons, you know, from over the years and tried to roll that into a product offering that we can say, okay, well, how do we create an environment for traders? And a retail environment that they actually have a chance of being successful. And that's really what Arenia is focused on at the moment. So are you a better day trader now than when you were 20 uh, or 22? <laughs> better than I was when I was 20, 22. But I think it's a hard pull to swallow to, to admit that I'm, you know, as far as intraday day trading goes, it's not really my strong suit, right? I can do it. But the reality is I'm better at sort of the medium to longer term stuff. Like I like to find what I call asymmetric opportunities. Oil is a good example over the last two years was an asymmetric opportunity. Uh, now, you know, obviously, the market is going through a very difficult time. So you're on the hunt for the next one that you can maybe sit in for six months to six to 24 months. I think I'm better at that than I am at really intraday trading. Luckily, at Arena, we do have a couple of real deal intraday traders, particularly Jonathan, for example, who leads the traders. He's our senior trader and he leads the clients on a daily basis. And he's very much a professional trader and has been for the last seven or eight years so you know 
let people who are better at the specific things than you are do what they're best at and you focus on other things, right? What do you need to be successful as a day trader? Do you need great software or is there a bit of skill involved? Uh, do you need a bit of talent? Look, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a tough question to answer. I mean, depending on who you ask, right? A lot of people will say to you, oh, well, you need a good strategy and good software or you need this screening, this or that. And, you know, there's a saying that says the tool does not make the craftsman, right? What you really need is an enormous amount of resilience. I think the way that day trading and trading in general is marketed to people is very disingenuous in the sense that they say, well, you know, you've got these three steps. It's really easy. You just follow these steps and you'll be successful. The reality is you need grit. Eh? It is hard. It is a level of uh, self-awareness that a lot of people aren't willing, you know, where they aren't willing to tread there. There's a lot of introspection that has to be done because you have to understand how you're making decisions, why you're making decisions, what influences the way you make decisions. It's quite a bit of work. So I want to say that, yes, it's not necessarily a talent. I believe that everybody has the ability to develop the skill set that they need to be successfully speculating in the markets on a consistent basis. But I do think that there's a very small number of people who are actually willing to put the work in in order to get there. To give you an example, you know, if you start trading and you're spending, I mean, we've got clients within our community, for example, that have been with us now for four years, some longer. And it takes them like a year or two before they really kind of start getting a grip with, okay, I can actually consistently do this and make a little bit of profit every month. It takes a very long time and it takes a lot of hard work. And I think the difference between those who quote unquote make it and those who don't is the amount of work that they put in. I think that you have to consider this as a job. It's not just a job. It is like a really, really difficult job. And the only outcome is you, right? The more accountability you're able to take for your own decisions, the better you'll do because, you know, you can't blame, oh, well, I didn't see this happening in the market. You're the one managing risk. And I think it takes a very special kind of person to be able to do that. We help create the environment for those lessons to be learned. But sometimes we have to be honest with clients and say, well, look, maybe this isn't really for you, right? How often um, does that happen? Actually, a bit more often than you realize. This year, we've, it's been a bit quiet. Obviously, the market is tough. So just by nature of the difficult market, people are trading less and the volumes are slightly lower than what they were last year. And that's also, I guess, a product of us putting the brakes on people, pouring a bit of cold water over them, saying, listen, guys, manage risk, manage risk. This is the most important thing you need to be doing. But there have been, over the last two years, I can sort of think about four or five people that we've had to say to, listen, this is not going to work for you. Maybe you need to reconsider how you're doing things. Sometimes we have conversations with someone where, you know, they do a silly trade or whatever the case, and you'll phone them up and be like, so this Rand dollar trade, um, <clears throat> you know, the exposure is like five, like five or six times your account size. What, what are you doing here? And that's enough to, to let them realize like, oh, you know, I need to start slowing down here. I need to actually come up with a with a proper plan. If it was easy, everybody would do it. Everybody would do it, yeah. Let's talk about your equity portfolio. Tell us about your equity portfolio. The long-term equity portfolio, we've got two versions of it, right? There's obviously the South African-focused one, which is invested only in South African-listed uh, equities. And then there is the offshore uh, portfolio where our mandate is quite a bit broader, where we can invest in almost any you know share as long as it's not in South Africa, basically. So both of these have actually performed relatively well. Both of them are, you know, I'm very grateful to say, or to be able to say that we've performed very well. We've provided positive returns so far this year. So we've outperformed the market by quite some margin. Uh, both of them are very conservative. I mean, both of them currently are sitting with about 
in cash. So sometimes that can be a bit frustrating for clients because they're saying, you're not utilizing all the money, but believe me, cash is a position and uh, it has done served us well so far this year. Obviously, the goal is to be fully invested when the markets turn positive again, but for now, we're being very conservative. Is your own money in that fund? Yes. So you don't have your own personal portfolio while you run other people's money in another portfolio? Obviously, I do have my own personal trading account as well, but it does make sense to put some of your own capital in the portfolios that you're managing on behalf of other clients because it ensures that I'm not going to put someone else through something that I'm not willing to go through myself, right? And also, being a financial services provider, there are all sorts of rules around conflict of interest and that kind of thing. So I can't spend the morning quickly buying some stocks on my shares and then, okay, now the client portfolios, which is, you know, like a hundred times bigger than my personal account, now they get to buy. And because I bought first, I make, mm. you know, a bit of extra profit. A that's obviously, that's called mm. front running, which is, a, which is a major conflict, right? So if you are invested in the same portfolios as your clients, then everybody gets the same price. Everybody has, pays the same fees proportionally. And there's no sort of special benefit to one person over another. Everybody is equal. So therefore, I think it is, at least that's my opinion, all right? I mean, I guess uh, I'd love to hear what people out there think about it. But I think that it, it's, uh, you know, it aligns our interests to make sure that, you know, everybody's treated equally. Just uh, mention a few of the major holdings you have within those funds. So locally, the, the two biggest holdings at this stage are both Sassel and uh, Tangela Resources, which have done really, really well for us. Uh, we also Not recently. Income government. <laughs> Well, not over the last couple of weeks, I suppose. But, you know, over the last two years, they've they've done pretty well. <laughs> also, I mean, to be fair, Tangela, 60 rand a share dividend. Come on, man. That was like 5% or something. It was massive, 15%. So, um, so, yeah, those have done really well for us. We also hold some fixed income stuff in there as well. And we also have a couple of more speculative things. There's a, there's a Jubilee uh, Metals Group um, uh, position in there as well. Uh, we've got some City Lodge holdings. We've got some Sun International. Uh, we've got one or two things that we got caught with our pants down as well. EOH, for example, is one of those. Um, and there's a little bit of Ellie's in there too. So it's a very diversified portfolio. I think we hold around, I want to say around 30 different shares in there. And the offshore world, we've, over the last two years, been you know very well positioned in the, in the energy market. The things that we're sort of most excited and rotating into the, uh, rather aggressively at this stage is uranium. So we hold a, ver- a variety of different, you know, two different uranium ETFs, as well as CCJ, which is a uranium mining business that's, you know, obviously listed in the US. We also have some, you know, Shell in there, OIH, these are all sort of mostly ETFs. So yeah, it's very sort of energy focused at this stage. We also have a little bit of agricultural production, wheat, as well as uh, Veggie, veggie, V-E-G-I uh, is the ticker, uh, and wheat, W-E-A-T. Not quite an ESG fund, but let's leave it there. Ah, <laughs> not ESG compliant at all, but profitable, I'll say. How do you evaluate investment opportunities? Uh, you are not a CA, and, and, and most of the CAs, they prefer the absolute analysis of uh, financial accounts. You have other top-down type of uh, approaches as well. So what do you do to find winners? So we're more thematic investors, if I can put it that way. Like the, Our process is very much one of, okay, well, firstly, we, we subscribe to quite a bit of different research providers that we get uh, research from. It's a lot of reading, number one. But also, you know, we're more thematic. So we look at things that's happening in the world around us and we try to think, 
well, how is this going to impact the world in the next sort of six to 12 months? And if we then find a theme that we can understand and can get behind, then we'll start to deploy capital and start looking for different instruments and different ways to express that view. For example, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, well, we were long well and we made a lot of money. And very recently, that's because there's a massive energy crisis, right? But if you look three years ago, what's happening, it became evident that three years ago, at that stage already, it had been five to seven years when last somebody invested in creating or building a new oil rig. So this energy shortage, as much as we're going, oh, it's Russia's fault, this has been coming for a long period of time, right? So we started picking up on that sort of imbalance or asymmetric asymmetry in the energy market where there's a lot of demand, ever-growing demand for, for energy. And like everybody's focused, so focused on ESG, nobody's drilling new oil wells. Nobody's investing in new coal mines. Nobody's investing in all the dirty energy stuff. And that created an opportunity for us where we realized, well, look, renewables are great, but one, they have a harder impact on the environment than what we like to admit. Cobalt and lithium, they come out of the ground, right? All you're really doing is displacing where the emissions are. Just because your car doesn't have any emissions because it has a battery doesn't mean that there isn't some mine in Africa that's digging out lithium by the ton. So we started to notice that, you know, there is a bit of an imbalance and nobody's investing in this stuff. And if we don't have some sort of a very rapid growth in efficiency in terms of the, the green energy stuff, we're going to be in a situation where we don't have enough oil. So we started looking for opportunities to get involved. So you're looking at so themes. That, yeah, so the thematic stuff is really kind of what we're looking at, So which is why we got involved in, in food production about a year ago. You know, over the last, I want to say, nine to 12 months, we've been looking at uranium, kind of dipping our fingers in there. The view at this stage is that at some point, the world caves in and uranium and nuclear energy gets painted green by the ESG brush. When that happens, we'll be well positioned to take advantage of that. Petri, what was your best investment ever? Best ever investment? I want to say Jubilee Metals Group. Eh? I mean, we bought that, we started buying that at, I think, 43 cents. Uh, and that topped out at like four rand. But to be fair, in a personal capacity, the best ever investment I've made was starting a business. <laughs> the return on invested capital, how much money it took to start the business versus how much has grown over the, well, look, I mean, it took seven, eight years almost. But that's definitely been the best investment I've ever made. And, uh, you know, in terms of stock price, I don't know, I've had a couple of good ones. TGA was a very good one. There was a very long time that, that Aspen just ran for years and years and years. That was good as well. Most recently, it was probably TGA, Tungela Resources. Did you get out at the top with Aspen? Well, there was a big head and shoulders that formed. So I actually got a few clients for that because I remember there was one client in particular that sort of phoned me up. I was still, you know, working for someone else at the stage. I was working for Kunzi. And I put a few head and shoulders charts on Twitter at the time. And then somebody phoned me and said, you have no idea how many millions of rands you saved me <laughs> because of your charts. Do, like, do okay, you cool. really believe in technical analyses? Do you think they work? I think that you've got to use a hybrid between technical analysis and fundamental analysis. Now, for example, like I was talking about it to some of the clients this morning. If you look at oil now, right now, on a weekly chart, it looks to have broken the upward trend that it's been on for the last sort of two years, right? So now from a technical perspective, you got to sell it. You know, you got to get out of your oil longs. You could potentially even put on a short if you like risk. And there's a big fundamental backdrop for that where it's like, well, you know, the world is heading into a global recession. So energy demand is going to taper off and we're going to see, you know, lower and lower oil demand as time goes by. But 
to me, I'm, I'm sitting here chewing on this. Like, well, technically, yes, it's a sell now. But fundamentally, it's not like Europe is having an easy time with energy, right? There's a big mismatch here. So I think that each of them have their time and place where you can trust them e- explicitly, but they also have a time and place where they might not necessarily be as reliable. And I think what the skill is that a lot of people, I suppose, and myself have to develop over time, and I mean, nobody's perfect, right? I, I get these things wrong from time to time too, is how do you know when to use which? And how do you know when to use a combination of the two? I think that takes a long time to develop. And I think also, you know, technical analysis is not necessarily just looking at charts. It's also looking at raw economic data. It's any sort of study of data is technical analysis, right? So you can build a model, for example, where you're looking at various inputs from CPI to housing starts to housing deliveries to all those different things to start building a score sheet of what the greater macroeconomic environment is like and whether or not you want to be invested in a specific region or a specific sector or whatever the case is, right? And that all, I suppose, falls under the the gambit of statistical or technical analysis. Let's talk about your biggest dog. What was the worst investment you've ever made? Oh, I guess I'm sitting with uh, some some Tongat Hewlett shares that are trading at the moment. (laughs) I probably still have some Tarbex. I was a diamond miner in Lesotho. Got a few thousand of those that haven't moved in uh, like almost 20 years now. <laughs> so yeah, I've made a couple of really bad mistakes along the lines. I can't really think of, you know, off the bat of like one particular share. I remember Steinoff almost murdered me. You know, like, I'm not going to be honest with you. There was once, I don't know if you remember, 2018, I was still in Cape Town at the time. We were doing, I think it was Arishia, lunchtime, 12 o'clock, 12.30 update on what was happening in the market. You and I were on the phone when a Steinoff sense came out. This was after Steinoff had collapsed and it was trading at like, I don't know, around 80 or something like that at the time. And that sense came out and I bought something like 200,000 shares. And during that little interview that we did, I lost 83 grand. That's the most money I've ever lost, the fastest ever. I went from you at midday again. I put the phone down and had a panic attack after that. It wasn't your fault, it was my stupidity. (laughs) Because I mean, what am I doing taking multi-million rand trades while talking to someone like it was stupid and i was on the radio it was really yeah that was that goes down as probably the most stressed i've ever been in a in a trading environment or in a trade ever we'll have to leave it there petri thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights with us it's a pleasure thanks uh, that was uh, petri redlingos he's the founder of irenia capital partners show me the money <laughs> That was the Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. Money Web, your trusted source for business and investment insights.